0: If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to John chapter 12. As we continue on in our study through John's gospel that we started at the beginning of the year. And Lord willing, we'll continue to move through for the remainder of this year and even into next year. There's a lot in here. I hope that you have enjoyed our study thus far. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we've been studying the gospel of John. And so remember, if you have no idea where John is, that's okay. It's in the New Testament. Feel free to use the table of contents You might want to open to about the middle of your Bible. There's a pew Bible there in front of you if you need to borrow one of ours, no problem. If you do not have a Bible of your own, there's some blue ESV paperbacks on the right-hand side as you head out of the sanctuary. Please take one of those, write your name in it, and keep it. And as you're opening up to John, go to the middle of your Bible, start turning to the right. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And look for the big number 12, that's the chapter that we're going to be in. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And while you're opening up there to John chapter 12, I want to ask you, have you ever been able to experience what you know is probably like a a once-in-a-lifetime experience or thing? You know in the moment, this is kind of a a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity that you get to have. It's like getting free tickets to the Super Bowl. Maybe getting tickets to what you knew was a sold-out Broadway show, and you were able to finally get in. Maybe getting To meet a sitting president at the White House. Maybe getting invited to a party at a very exclusive location where you know that normally I'm not allowed behind those gates, but for this night I'm allowed to go in and I'm going to enjoy every minute of it. Maybe saving up and finally being able to go on that dream vacation. Maybe something even as simple as watching a full solar eclipse as it goes over your house. Just neat stuff like that. You know it's kind of a a once-in-a-lifetime thing, It's there in front of you. When you think about moments like that, these moments are worth celebrating and enjoying because you know that they're fleeting. That's what makes them special. And that's why we remember them so vividly. These experiences capture our hearts and we realize how special they are and so we really spare no expense to make them happen. And we find ourselves kind of dwelling a little bit longer to kind of soak it all in because you know that this moment is fleeting. And so you're just there, and you're just trying to absorb it all. It's like meeting someone you admire in person. And you're like, oh, you're actually, like, I've only seen you on the screen, but, like, you're real life. And you're either taller or shorter there than I thought you were. Maybe getting to sit in James Bond's Aston Martin DB5. Like, you've only seen it, and then, oh, there it is. I get to be near it. Oh, I get to sit in it? That's amazing. Maybe going back to the exact same spot where you first met your future spouse. Maybe getting to actually visit a place that you've only seen in pictures, but now you get to finally see it in person. Maybe this building or this city or this view that you've you've seen and it maybe up until that point it's just been a maybe a passing one of those screensaver shots that comes and you're like, "Man, I would love to go there." And then you find yourself there. And you realize just it's even more beautiful than you could imagine. You see, when we think about experiences like this, an amazing thing happens when the intrinsic worth of something and our affections for that something line up. When the worth of something and our affections for it, when they line up, it's an amazing thing that happens. Here's what Antoine de Saint-Exupéry said, pardon my French pronunciation there. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them task and work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. He said, if you want to build a ship, don't just say, well, you go do this and you go do this and you go do this. You go, hey, when we finish building this thing, we're going to get to go out into the immensity of the ocean. And people's hearts will be drawn towards that immensity. But, if we're honest with ourselves, I'm just like this. We all have fickle hearts, don't we? And the problem comes when something gets too familiar. What once captured our hearts fades into the background and uh, eventually becomes an object of scorn. It's like buying a new car. When you first buy that new car, you go out, or a new-to-you car. doesn't have to be brand new, but a new-to-you car, you know, you check it, you keep an eye on it. You go out, you might just drive around in it, take a little short run around the neighborhood just because you want to, because it's fun, brand new. Fast forward, you know, like if you get a little scratch on it, you find yourself like buffing it out. (laughs) You wash it constantly. Fast forward a year. You don't even remember that day. It's just kind of your car, right? It just gets you from here to there. You've stopped washing it. It got a scratch down the side. You don't really care. But the first time it breaks down, you hate it and want to get a new one, don't you? What once captured your heart now has become an object of scorn. And we're like this with lots of stuff. Material possessions, relationships, where we live, etc. Joni Mitchell wrote in her song, Big Yellow Taxi, that was covered by the Counting Crows. She said, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got until it's gone? It's so true. You don't know what you got until it's gone. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I didn't know that that was so special. And we think about what's going on here, as we we continue to march towards the cross in John's gospel, we get to see one of these once-in-a-lifetime experiences that takes place in the house of Mary and Martha. Lazarus, remember, he's been raised from the dead. We looked at that last week. And his two grateful sisters arrange a meal for Jesus. And they wanted to thank him for his love and for bringing their brother back to life. I mean, put yourself in this room. Imagine eating a meal with a man brought back from the dead. That in and of itself is absolutely amazing. And then realize that the guy that brought him back to life is sitting right there too. You have the guy who has been raised from the dead and the one who called him back to life by the power of his voice. They're sitting, both sitting right there. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Put yourself in the place of those who are in attendance and ask the question, how would you respond? How would you handle this? Let's see what happened. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Word this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those, reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I'm thankful for that, and I hope you are too. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help as we look to his word. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, your people, we come to you with expectant hearts, Lord, but we're fickle. Remind us of your grace and your mercy. Take this word. Please apply it to our hearts. Remind us of just how good you are. Lord, we ask and pray that you would meet us here. Change our hearts just in some small way. We pray and ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. You may have noticed as we've been moving now through 11 full chapters of John's gospel into the start of chapter 12, that throughout this gospel account, we see people reacting to Jesus in very different ways. Remember the Old Testament says someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say someone's here right now. So we're in that portion of Scripture where we're looking at the life and the ministry and the signs and the wonders of Jesus And throughout John's Gospel account, we see these multiple responses to Jesus' words, to Jesus' miracles, to just His presence. There's these different reactions that come. Some respond with worship. Others respond with absolute scorn. And even this morning, we see both of these reactions in this passage. And so I want to use these two reactions as our two main points this morning. And so we're going to see the response of extravagant worship, And then we're also going to see the response of extravagant scorn as we look at an extravagant feast that's laid. That's the sermon title. So we see this extravagant feast that has been laid, and we see two responses one of extravagant worship and another of extravagant scorn. And we're going to apply as we go through. Let's look at this first point a response of extravagant worship. Look in verse one as the scene opens. We find out that some time has passed since Lazarus's resurrection, and we're told that we're six days before the Passover, and Jesus has returned to Bethany and to the house of Simon the leper. We find that out in Mark chapter fourteen, verse three. It says that that was the whose house this was, and this is the Saturday evening after the close of the Sabbath. Remember, Sabbath was sun up to sundown, so this is after the Sabbath has closed. Before, we, we, before what we now call Holy Week, that begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, which starts in verse 12, which we're going to cover next week. And so in verse 2, we find Martha doing what she loved best. She loved hosting meals in her home for Jesus. Remember, this house of Mary and Martha, this was a place where Jesus and his disciples, they felt very at home. They could kind of just come and and rest and and be taken care of, and Martha was obviously known for her hospitality. And we would assume that, uh, that Jesus' disciples are also with him, most notably John, who wrote the details down, and we hear about Judas and his response. So we'd imagine it's Jesus and his disciples in her home. And we can imagine Martha sparing no expense to make this a special dinner for Jesus. Remember, their brother had been raised from the dead. Not he wasn't swooning or passed out. He had been in the tomb for four days. Everybody knew Lazarus was dead. And now Lazarus has been brought back to life. And they want to thank Jesus in the way that they know how. And Martha knows how to say thank you to Jesus by throwing a huge party. And you can imagine no expense has been spared for this once-in-a-lifetime thank-you meal for Jesus and his disciples. In verse 3, we're told that Mary brings out a pound of expensive ointment made from spikenard. And the Greek word here, litra, is used to describe how much of it. Like when it says pound, the Greek word is litra, and it's roughly 11 ounces. So think about the size of a Coke can, just to have that in your mind. So she brings out this, this expensive ointment about the size of a Coke can, and this... this uh, it says it was made from pure nard. It was imported from northern India by the Romans. And what, what what's one of the things that the Romans used this for was anointing the heads of royalty. And it was also used by the Jews for preparing bodies for burial. And so, in verse 5, Judas we see Judas assessing its value at 300 denarii. That's almost a year's worth of, of salary, is how expensive this ointment is, how expensive this... Spike Nard is. It's almost a year. Take your salary for the year and say, I'm going to save it all up and I'm going to buy this one thing. That's what we're talking about here. Very expensive. Many would buy perfumes in the ancient Near East like an investment. You know how people say we buy gold as a hedge against inflation and all this. People would buy these expensive ointments as kind of like an investment vehicle that I'm going to, I'm going to pay this and I'm going to hold on to it and it will always be something that I can sell and reclaim my money. And so imagine that's what's going on here. This is a very precious thing that this family would have had. Now we're not told how the family got this ointment. We're not told how they got the money to buy it. It's kind of inconsequential. The thing that we do notice though is it appears that the whole family knew that this was coming and they agreed to it being used in this way. What they're doing as a family is they are giving their very best that they had in worship and thanksgiving to Christ. They're like, you are worthy of this. This is the best that we have. And Mark tells us that this was kept in an alabaster jar, which she broke open. We don't know if they broke the seal or broke the bottle, I don't know. But it was sealed and now it's not. And more than likely, she anointed Jesus' head. Mark tells us that she did, and she anoints Jesus' feet. And two, history, two interesting things happen here. You can imagine they're reclining at table, which what they would do is they wouldn't sit like we normally do at a restaurant. What they would do is they would lie on their side at a, like a low table, and their feet would be pointing the other way as they're eating the meal. It's kind of like they're, you know, balancing on one hand, and they're eating with the other, and their feet are sticking out the other way. That's just to have that in mind. And two interesting things happen here in this scene. Mary took her hair down which was never done outside of the presence of family in the home, and she attended to Jesus' feet, which was an act of service. We'll see Jesus do this later with his own disciples as he washes their feet. And what we're witnessing here is a really intimate act of love and devotion towards Jesus. This is one of those moments when the intrinsic worth of something and their affections for that something line up. This is one of those moments like this, one of these precious moments Precious moments. What we're getting to see is we're getting a kind of an eyewitness account of a very intimate, precious time where they're just trying to, in some way, tell Jesus thank you for all that he has done. I mean, where would you start? I don't know. Here's what Ritterboss said He said, Mary's action expresses what she did not have the words to voice, but it filled the whole house with the fragrance of her love. And as such, would continue to spread through the preaching of the gospel in the whole world. We think about what's going on here this morning. and What it reminds us of is that Jesus is worthy of the very best that we have. Jesus is worthy of the very best that we have. We respond with love and devotion for who He is and what He has done. He is worthy of all that we have, the best that we have. If you are here and you claim Christ as your Savior... You need to find where you fit into this passage. You're in the position of Lazarus. One who has been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life by the powerful and effectual word of the Good Shepherd calling to you by name. And you think about what's going on here. And you you ask the question, how could we even begin to thank Jesus for all that He has done for us? Where would you start? Where do you go? If we've been brought from spiritual death into spiritual life by grace and by this effectual calling and Jesus setting his love upon us, and how in the world do you even begin to say thank you? We couldn't possibly repay him, but we can worship him, as Mary did, with all that we have. Here's what James K.A. Smith said a really helpful book called You Are What You Love. Here's what he said, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand phrase, the kingdom of God. Our heart's being captured by that. We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for, your kingdom. Let your kingdom come, O Lord. But we're also constantly reminded that there's a war going on in our hearts between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. That's what's always going on in our hearts. There's this war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. And we even see that here in this passage. That's where we see this response of extravagant scorn. Think about what Mary is doing here. This extravagant act of worship, as Martha has laid this feast out, Lazarus is just there going, I can't believe, I was literally dead a couple of days ago, and now I'm not. And Mary coming and pouring out this super expensive, costly thing on Jesus and anointing Him. This precious moment, this act of extravagant worship. One of those moments where you would love to be a fly on the wall and you don't want to... You know, be the person that kind of breaks that holy hush. You know what I'm talking about? That holy hush. It's like when we're here on Christmas Eve and we light the candles and we're singing Silent Night and we just kind of sit there for a minute and dwell. Kind of a holy hush falls. You don't want to be the guy that breaks the holy hush. But then there's Judas. Think about this expensive, genuine act of love and honor that has just taken place and how it's immediately met with scorn by Judas. We've already seen similar responses by the Pharisees in the wake of Jesus' miracles. And now we see this response within his own inner circle. Charles Spurgeon once told the story of a king, a farmer, and a nobleman. It's a great story. you probably heard it before, but I'm going to tell it to you again. It's a great story. Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land, and one day there was a gardener who grew this enormous carrot. And he came to the king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot that I have ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect towards you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land to you freely as a gift that you can garden it and you can make more awesome carrots the gardener was absolutely amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, what imagine what you would get for something even better. And so the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect." He realized what the gardener had said and kind of just copy and pasted his, his statement of adoration. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you, and took the horse and simply dismissed the man. And the nobleman was perplexed because in his own mind he was like, well, the gardener brought, all he brought was a carrot. And he got this plot of land, I'm bringing this horse, that has got to be worth a little bit more land or something. The nobleman was perplexed so the king said, let me explain, that gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. That's what's going on in this text. That's what's going on. It's exactly what we see in verse 5. Judas scorns Mary as he complains against the costliness of our gift. And what he does is he feigns, he feigns concern for the poor, and he calls it a waste of money. Instead of rejoicing with his family, he responds with jealousy. What we see here is someone who's coming and given a very precious thing to Jesus, and there's someone over in their self-righteousness saying, well, that could have been used for missions. Instead of just rejoicing in the fact that this person is longing to worship Christ. Instead of rejoicing with this family, he responds with jealousy. And look at verse 6. We're told the true nature of Judas's heart. He was only looking out for himself. It says he was a thief. Here's what Ketty said in his commentary. He said that the native language of love is generosity was something that Judas could not comprehend. The natural man does not have a clue when it comes to spiritual things. His heart's in the wrong place. He lives in a different world in his soul. He cannot see past himself. You see what's going on in this text is John wrote this in hindsight because at the moment Judas had everyone fooled. Remember, just a few days later, Jesus will sell Jesus out for one-fifth of the amount of the ointment. He's complaining this could have been used. This could have been sold. But the only thing he's thinking about is his cut. We could sell it, and then I get a little cut secretly. And keep in mind, as he is feigning care for the poor, he will sell Jesus out for one-fifth the price. Just a couple days later, a couple of pieces of silver, he sells the Savior out. And the thing, when we think about what's going on with Judas, again, it's so easy to shake our head at him and go, oh, Judas, until we find ourselves in him, and we see ourselves in this passage. And we need to be on the lookout for this in our own hearts. What we see here is spiritual hypocrisy. A couple of examples as I was thinking about this. It's like complaining about prayer and the Bible being taken out of schools when they've been removed from our own lives for years. Saying things like, that money could have been used for missions while simultaneously never giving a nickel to personally help fund missions work or church planting. Holding others to a higher spiritual standard than you yourself would ever want to be held to. That's a Judas-like heart, and we're all guilty of it, myself included. We all have the tendency to sell Jesus out to protect our own image, to protect our comfort, to protect our control over things. We're so easy to sell Jesus out or pretend that we don't know him when we feel life pushing in. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. When we think about what's going on here, again, Ketty said, there's nothing more discouraging to discipleship than the frowns of fellow believers. We're all born with a Judas heart that needs to be replaced with a Mary heart that's reminded of the unsurpassing worth and value of Jesus in His kingdom. Our hearts need to be captured by something bigger and better. Our hearts need to be captured not by the wood and tasks and works of all the things of the world, like building the ship. And our hearts are so focused on that. Our hearts need to be gripped by the immensity of God's love of the ocean of His grace. Our hearts need to be captured by that. Not the ins and outs and the wood and the task and the works of the things of the world. Our hearts need to be captured by something more bright and beautiful. The loveliness of Christ. The immensity of the ocean of God's grace that's there. And our hearts lean into that and say, I want that. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glorious grace. That's what we're talking about. What happens when this finally hits? What happens when our hearts are captured by something more bright and beautiful? How does this play itself out even in the life of our own church? We'll stop worrying about who has the nicest car in the church parking lot. Or looking down our noses at the person who brings a bucket of KFC or a store-bought cake to a church potluck. It happens. Sometimes somebody is just barely there. And the best they can do is go run by the store and grab and buy a cake or buy a bucket of chicken and bring it. And we all know the KFC is the first thing to go because it's delicious. <laughs> we'll stop pulling into the parking lot and wondering, oh, whose nice car is this? Or who's that? Or who's that? Or, who's that? What, how does this work itself out in the life of our church? What we'll see is that instead of worrying about all that kind of stuff, we'll get to kind of pull back and just be glad that Jesus saved them too. And have the privilege of getting to know them. And we'll rejoice when they give what they can. When people give of their time and their talent and their treasure. We're just thankful. Man, what a joy to get to know you. You're a fellow redeemed saint of the Lord. What a joy. What a precious thing to know you. You ever thought about over the course of your life, all the people that the Lord has brought in your path. All the places that you've lived. All these fellow brothers and sisters who have spoken a word of grace to you. The other pastors that you've sat under who have reminded you that Jesus loves you. Every one of these precious things. And we're thankful for every one of them. We say, thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. We stop looking down our noses on folks and what they can. They did just give what they can for the glory of Christ. Young and old, rich or poor, put together or just barely hanging in there. We say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving them. Thank you for the privilege that I get to know them. Thank you for the privilege of, of being able to watch them bring the best that they have for the glory of the kingdom. And so I'm like, give till it hurts for the glory of Christ. Sing and serve and play and do whatever else till it hurts to the glory of Christ. And we do it all together for the sake of his name. Let's keep encouraging each other to give the best that we have to Jesus in his kingdom. And you may be asking in the midst of this, well, why in the world didn't Jesus, who knew Judas's heart, why did he not expose this hypocrisy and stop it? He could have. Why didn't he just say, Judas, stop? Why didn't he stop it? Because it was all part of the sovereign plan of God. Judas's hypocrisy, his betrayal, needed to run its course all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane when he would sell Jesus out and all the way to the cross of Calvary. It needed to run its course. Look at verse 7. Jesus accepted her extravagant display of love and devotion because he knew that it is foreshadowing. He says, she has kept it for the day of my burial. He knew what was coming. You think, well, keep what? I thought she poured it all out. What is she keeping? She's keeping the memory of this moment with her. Mary knew that Jesus' ministry would eventually lead to a final clash with the powerful Pharisees and the Romans. She just didn't know when. It wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when. And you could feel that tension building. Remember, we've, we started in the Gospel of John. How many times has Jesus gotten into it with the powerful Pharisees? A bunch. How many times has he gotten into it with the wealthy elite and the ruling class? And a ton. The tension has been building since the very first chapter. Look at verses 9 through 11. Even poor Lazarus was in their crosshairs. Look at verse 10. Did you not pick up on that when we read this? Think about This guy just got raised from the dead. Look at verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Poor Lazarus. He's already died once, and now he's got the Pharisees after him and want to kill him again. When you think about what's going on, just the hatred that these people have for Jesus, the tension's building. We know it's coming. So why in the world did he not stop it? Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. The cross still stood in front of him, and what Mary was doing had eternal significance. Again, here's what Keddie said. Oh, excuse me, I missed missed a quote I want to read. Lazarus has already died once, but the Pharisees plotted to kill him again. Here's what Matthew Henry said. This is a great quote. He said, God will have Lazarus to live by a miracle, and they will have him to die by malice. It's a good quote. Why? Why did they want to take Lazarus out? Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus's life and resurrection had become a witness for Christ, and many were coming to know Jesus because of his testimony. And the question simply is this, has God ever used your testimony in this way? Could you be found guilty of being associated with Christ, of someone knowing and coming to the Lord because of your testimony, because the way that you've shared. In verse 8, we see Jesus acknowledging the greater significance of this moment. He was not discounting ministry to the poor and the ongoing need to care for them. It's a good reminder for us today as Christ's disciples. We are to have a concern for the poor. We are to have a concern for those around us. But Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. The cross still stood in front of him, and what Mary was doing had eternal significance. Now, Ketty, here's what he said. Salvation itself was about to be secured for the world that Jesus had come to save. The death anticipated in Mary's sumptuous gift was the one death that could pay the penalty for sin for everyone who will be redeemed and reconciled to God from all generations, past, present, and future of humankind." You see, again, what we're marching towards is the ultimate once-in-a-lifetime event. We are moving towards the ultimate event. The very next day, he would be heralded as the king of Israel while riding on a donkey. And the amazing thing when you really think about that is more than likely, he probably smelled like nard as he is riding into town. This nard that was used by the Romans to anoint the heads of royalty. But also for the Jews to anoint those bodies for burial. And Jesus rides into, the, rides into the city smelling like nard. And you think, it's both of those things are true. He was both king and one who was sent to die. Both of those things were true at the same time. As he rides into town. And people spreading the palm branches, "Hosanna, you are the king of Israel." It's amazing when you think about that. And so the question this morning is, how do you respond to this text? How are you going to respond? Are you going to respond with curiosity? Okay, well, you know, Jesus did some cool stuff, but you know, whatever. Are you going to respond with indifference? Are you going to respond with scorn? <clears throat> are you going to respond with worship? for all that Christ has done. The biggest question that we all need to ask as we close before we come to the table is what is the present value of Jesus and the cross in your life today? Is it worth all that you have? Is it worth your worship? Is it worth everything that you have as you come and you pour out your praise before the Lord and thank thank Him for all that He has done? Or has He gotten so familiar to you that He's become an object of scorn? Who is Jesus to you this morning? Because when we think about what we're about to do, just a few days later on Maundy Thursday, another supper would be prepared, a simple Passover, but one of extravagant grace and love with untold spiritual significance for the sake of undeserving spiritual hypocrites like you and me. Jesus would take bread, he would take wine, and he would point his disciples again to his death and burial as the true and better ultimate Passover lamb. And we would be reminded of those words that John the Baptist said when we come to this table, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This before you, set before you, is a meal of extravagant grace. This isn't just something that we do with just no bare meaning behind it. This isn't just a kind of mid-worship service or end-of-worship service snack. We come recognizing and remembering that this points to Jesus and all that He has done. And the Lord knows that our hearts get rusty. He knows that we're fickle, that we're forgetful. We need to be reminded of Christ's return. We need to remember His grace and mercy. And so, He's given us this physical reminder. This is a good gift given to us by a loving God. And the other amazing thing about this table, when we think about it, you might be thinking, I'm not worthy enough to come. God only knew my heart. I'm not worthy enough to come to this table. Guess what? i got good news for you. This is a table for imperfect people. This is a table that for those who see their sin and their need for grace. This is for Christians who look to Jesus by faith and faith alone. And so this table is also set for members in good standing of any evangelical church that preaches the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're a member of another church or visiting, that's okay. This isn't the PCA's table. It's the Lord's table. And if you consider yourself to be a Christian, if you consider yourself to be a sinner in desperate need of God's grace and mercy, and you look to Christ and Christ alone by faith, this table's for you. Please come. Please eat with us. Please be with us. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to feel no pressure to participate. Actually, we would ask that you would let the elements pass. Why? Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we need to be able to examine ourselves to be discerning of Christ's sacrifice and of His body and of His blood. And if we eat and drink this in an unworthy manner, that we may be eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. And so if you're here and you do not trust Christ, please let the elements pass, but we hope that you won't let them pass for long. We hope that you'll use this time as a time to examine your relationship with Jesus. At Grace Pres, we are going to pass the elements separately while we remain seating. Seated, and we'll take them together one at a time. First the bread, and then the cup. You also notice as, the, as they go around in the bread tray, which will pass first, if you would prefer to have one of the pre-packaged ones, those are there for you as well. And so feel, feel free to take it. It's going to look like this. And again, I'll do the demo. There's a, a clear little tab on the top that'll get you to the wafer, and then the big purple tab underneath will get you to the juice. And if you need some help, just raise your hand. If you would prefer those, they are there for you. On the night he was betrayed, as the elders come forward, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. For those who trust in Christ this morning and look to Christ by faith and faith alone and realize that you are a sinner in desperate need of mercy and that you have a good Savior who loves you, I've got some really good news for you. This table is set before you. This table of extravagant grace is set before you and we're called to come and to feed on him. Let's pray together as we ask the Lord's help. Father, we thank you this morning as we come to you as your people, and we're thankful that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. You are always faithful to your word. And we pray, Father, that you would grant us access to the throne of grace this morning as we come before you. Please set apart these humble elements for a holy use. Show us your grace. Remind us of your love. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of your sacrifice. Take those things and seal them into our hearts as we handle and taste and touch and smell and see the gospel set before us. Father, please meet us here and comfort and strengthen and encourage our hearts this morning. We ask all these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.